0: As we discussed last week, we are working through um, biblical Christian marriage points. Okay, and uh, we 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 got here because we've been teaching through verse by verse the book of Ephesians, and in Ephesians chapter five, verse twenty-two, which I'll have you turn there. So turn to Ephesians five twenty-two. We come to Paul's statement in verse twenty-one, where he says, submitting to one another." And then he says, wives, to your own husbands. Um, He says that a couple of times, and he says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And then he summarizes by saying, husbands, love your wives, and wives, fear your husbands. (laughs) Fear your husbands, which we'll talk about later uh, in the morning worship service this morning. Now, by fear, it doesn't mean, of course, fear as in tremble, like you're going to suffer harm, it means more like admire. okay. But what I wanted to do was work through um, in more or less what it sounds like to attend one of my pre-marriage counseling sessions. Now, what I discovered last week in attempting this is it's a little harder than I thought to bring the counsel, it's easier to bring the pulpit into the counseling than it is to bring the counseling into the pulpit. Okay, um, I, I didn't realize how much interaction there is in a counseling session that you sort of rely on to move things forward. So I don't know that I did it all that great last week, but we're going to try to do better this week. Um, I'd like us to touch on a very important subject this morning. Um, probably... I would if you asked me what are your top five concerns as pastor of fellowship Bible Church, this is definitely right in there. Um, this is definitely right in there. Um, one of the greatest disappointments repeatedly the greatest disappointments that we faced uh, as as pastor and wife here have been when Christians marry non-Christians. And so God speaks very clearly about this. Christians are only to marry other Christians, period. Okay. Now, clearly, some of us have married and then gotten saved, and then our spouse remains unsaved, and we're not talking about that situation. We're talking about the situation where there's a young person and, or an older person even, but they're single, and it's time for them to consider marriage, and along comes a person that they love, a person that they really like. There's some compatibility and chemistry, but they're not a Christian. Okay? Now, one thing I want to be very clear before we get started is the unbelieving person in this equation isn't the enemy. Okay? They, They're, in a sense, doing nothing wrong. And, in fact, when I've had opportunities, I've sat down with that unbeliever and, in great sympathy, and not sympathy, but empathy, tried to convince them not to go through with this because, ultimately, they will be miserable. Yes, the Christian person is going to be incomplete, but the believing, the unbelieving person is going to feel like they've been given a bait and switch. Okay, they're not okay with only ever being second, like we talked about last week. And I try to be very real with them about what life is going to be like with a believer. And again, they're not the enemy. I don't. This is not about hate. This is actually about love. And I, what I'm saying to them is, look, I love you, and I. I want you to become a Christian, but if if you don't want to be, please don't marry a believer because that's not going to go well for you. You're not going to be fulfilled in that relationship, okay? But I'm skipping way ahead of myself, okay? Let's have a, what I want to do is talk through what I'm calling a biblical defense for Christian marriage, a biblical defense for Christian marriage. Now, why am I making this so strong and so important? Well, all of us, all of us in here, without exception, have connection to Christian young people. Okay? And we're going to be counseling people on who they ought to marry. And we, above all people, the adults in the room, have to be convinced of Christian marriage for Christians. And... We have to train our children, when they become Christians, to only consider marriage to other Christians, and we have to hammer this home to them. Really, truly, this is one of the greatest disappointments that I have faced as pastor, is seeing a Christian, a professing Christian, marry an unbeliever, and it, it doesn't ever end well, and it's It's heartbreaking. And I would like to preserve everybody from that. Okay. So let's let's get into our let's get into our uh, biblical defense. Because I haven't said much Bible yet so far. All right, let's first review our definition from Christian marriage, which we learned last week. And like I said, I could put little Bible verses, many Bible verses after each one of these little phrases. But this is going to be sort of the the point from which we work. Uh, A definition of Christian marriage. Christian marriage is an act of divine creation. God makes a marriage when he pronounces through his officiant that they are married. So you're two, and then when the preacher or the representative says, by the power invested in me as a minister of the gospel, I now pronounce you man and wife, now you're one. Okay? Before you were two, now you're one. Okay? That's God's doing, not man's. Christian marriage is an act of divine creation whereby God unifies... A man and woman, they are no longer two, but one. He unifies a man and woman to complete his image in them. He made both of them male and female. He created them in his image. He unites them together to complete his image in them. As they model the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, she admires him the same way the church admires Christ, and he loves her the same way that Christ loves the church. They model the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ in their actions and affections. In their actions and affections, as we reviewed with my kids the other night during our Bible time. You can stomp off in a huff while doing the right thing. (laughs) But that affection isn't where it needs to be. Okay. Now, my purpose today is to convince you Inalterably from the Bible that Christian people should only marry Christian people. Okay? Now, you might be saying to yourself, well, wait a minute, Pastor Greg, I've scoured the New Testament, and I know that there's no specific verse that says you shall not marry an unbeliever. And I would say, if we're talking New Testament, you're right. But that's a very narrow way to determine what somebody wants. How many of you have had kids say, well, you never told me I can't swing my fists violently such that they strike my little sister in the nose? (laughs) You would say, well, no, I never said not to do that. (laughs) But we have other rules in place. You say, well, are you going to throw the verse at me, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers? Well, that verse is there. And no, that verse is not talking specifically about marriage. And I'm not going to use it, just to remove that little excuse from anybody who would say so. Okay, now let's get into the Bible text. I've got several on the screen. Okay, I've got. We're just gonna, don't feel like you got to catch up. The PowerPoint will be made available, and you can you can keep up with them. We're going to start at the beginning of the Bible and move toward the end of the Bible. Okay, while Israel lived in Shittim, the people who uh, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. They invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Why did I pick this verse above the others? Because this is, what nationality was Ruth from the Bible? She was a Moabite. And here, we're told that the people did wrong by marrying the daughters of the Moabites. What I'm doing is I'm demonstrating that it's not about nationality. It's about theology. And here, these were Moabites who had other gods. They worshipped the Baal of Peor. And when they united people of different gods, of different theologies, God was so offended by it, he said that they had gone whoring. After other gods, and in, De- in Deuteronomy chapter seven verse three, God gets very specific. He says, "You shall not intermarry with them." These are the people that were supposed to be driven out of the land, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. God says, "Don't intermarry with the people of the land." And again, there are examples of inhabitants of the land who, in fact, ended up in the genealogy of Jesus. Can we think of one? Well, there was Rahab the prostitute. But remember, this isn't a matter of nationality. It's a matter of theology. And what God is saying is don't yoke yourself. Don't intermarry with people of a different theology. Number three, Joshua 23, 13. They've been given these commands. They've entered the land. They've had some success in conquering the people. These are Joshua's last words. If you turn back, If you turn your back on the Lord, if you backslide, that's sort of where we get this idea from, if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you, what would that look like, clinging to these nations, the nations you were supposed to drive out? Here's what it would look like, and make marriages with them. They shall be a snare and a trap for you. As a matter of fact, the verse goes on to say that there'll be thorns in your flesh, they will not be a blessing, they will be a curse. Okay? Here Joshua is spelling out with absolute clarity. Do not intermarry with pagans. Do not intermarry with people who have a different theology than you. First Kings chapter 11, verses 1-4. through 4. This is the chief example of what happens when Christians, or I'm sorry, believers, marry unbelievers. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, His wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God. It was foreign women of different theologies that Solomon should have never married. Solomon shouldn't have even had 699 other wives or 300 other concubines. It should have been one. Whoever he married first should have stayed his first and his only, and this would have served him So much better. But instead, the pagan wives turned his heart. This became a problem in which the Israelites consistently fell into. Nehemiah chapter 13, verses 23 through 25. In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people, meaning they couldn't learn the Bible. They couldn't learn the covenant, the Old Testament. They didn't know what God's laws were. And I confronted them, and cursed them, and beat some of them, and pulled out their hair, and I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons, or for yourselves." Now, this is quite a punishment that Nehemiah is issuing on people. <laughs> he imprisoned them. He beat them. What else does it say? He pulled out their hair. Now, look, I don't think I've ever had my hair deliberately pulled. I think I'd rather be punched in the nose than have my hair pulled. Okay, <laughs> this sounds, That sounds awful. Or your beard ripped out. Oh, man, punch me in the stomach, please. Well, he did both because this was so offensive to God. This was so offensive to God. Now, mind you, God God commended Nehemiah for this. God commended Nehemiah for this, right? God was saying, Nehemiah didn't overreact. That's how I feel about it. Verse 5. Well, before we get there, just keep in mind, these marriages weren't stumbled into by accident. Okay? It's not like, An Israelite man woke up one morning and went, oh, how'd she get here? (laughs) This was a deliberate act of rebellion. And so Nehemiah delivered a deliberate judicial punishment for what was a premeditated act that was so in rebellion to God it had to be dealt with. uh, Number five, after these things had been done, the officials approached me, this is Ezra, and said, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites, for they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands, and in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and the chief men has been foremost. So here, Ezra is trying to clean things up, and wouldn't you know it? many of the leaders, many of the chief leaders had taken foreign women who worshipped foreign gods because remember, nationality is not the issue. Theology is. And Ezra was overcome by this. He tore his clothes, and he and the leaders sat in repentance in the rain for an entire day, begging God's forgiveness for their sins again this was not an occasion to shake your head and say I wish they wouldn't have done that oh well and move on with life this was such an affront an affront and an offense to God that it demanded the greatest demonstrations of repentance in the eyes of God's leaders now let's move to the New Testament 1st Corinthians chapter 7 verse 39 now, what I'd like to point out is when we come to the New Testament, it's virtually, not, I'm going to take the virtually off of that, it's just assumed that this is a command of God that carries over. Okay? This is a command of God that carries over. There are commands in the Old Testament, like do not murder, that carry over to the New, though they receive scant attention in the New Testament. Okay? There are, there's a, it, Revelation is a continuum, and the New Testament authors don't always feel the need to repeat exactly what carries over and what doesn't. There are certain things that are so obvious and clear that the New Testament feels no need to repeat it, and so that's the case here. The Apostle Paul is assuming that you would agree with him in this point. He says this, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 39, a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she's free to be married to whom she wishes. Only, and the word in Greek is very specific, monon, only, only in the Lord. Now, what he means by that is only as long, in fact, the NIV translates it this way, only as long as he is in the Lord. The New Living Translation translates it only as long as he's be- a believer. Okay? Only in the Lord. This is what Paul's saying. It's a it's a given. It's Paul would say, look at the weight of Old Testament material. Believers must marry believers. Or 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 5. He's defending himself. He says, Do we not to have do we not have the right to take along a believing wife? A believing wife. Again, it's a basic assumption that Christians will marry Christians. And when he's talking to these Corinthian people, perhaps he knew that that assumption wasn't totally a given. And so he pointed it out twice. When Paul writes again in 1 Timothy, he tells that both deacons and elders are required to have believing wives. Having a believing wife is a basic requirement for service in, the, in, uh, in leadership in the Church of the Living God. Okay? Now, what I would like to submit to you is those specific statements are actually the weakest support for the fact that Christians should only marry Christians. Let's move to the stronger support. I had you, uh, let's go to the purpose of marriage. (laughs) The purpose of marriage is to complete the image of God in mankind. We covered this one last week, Genesis 127. God creates women in his image. He creates men in his image. He brings them together, two into one. He unifies them. He doesn't give all his image to man. He doesn't give all his image to the wife. To the woman. It's when he knits those two together that they begin to complete the image of God. It's the conversion of heterogeneous parts that create a unified whole. And he knits them so closely together, they effectively become one. And they bear that image of God together. Okay? The entire purpose of marriage is to complete the image of God. And we cannot complete the image of God if one part doesn't want God. If you've only got one half trying to accomplish its purpose, it's missing the second integral part required to make it complete the image of God. It's it's, it's lacking. It's like like a, a... it's like a car without a transmission. It's like a lawn mower without a carburetor. You can pull and pull and pull on that rope all you want. It ain't going to start. OK? It's a necessary component. It's like a bicycle. Um, how many of you have been riding your bicycle along, and suddenly the chain pops off the cog, and your feet start going <laughs> You are ineffectually pedaling that bike. Is there anything wrong with the entire rest of the bike? Now, is there anything wrong with a person pedaling the bike? Nope, but that chain which it, think about what a chain is and think about what a cog is do they do they even look similar if you re, you need both joined together to make the thing propel forward and if you need both working in unison to accomplish that purpose to make marriage go and then of course in Ephesians five verses twenty two through twenty twenty three which we will study. Uh, in the morning service, we have the picture of Christ in the church. Paul says, wives, to your own husbands as unto the Lord. Honor your husband as the church does Christ, who is its savior. He's the head. Husbands, love your wife as Christ, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Both parties are using Christ as their paradigm. They're using Christ as their example. They're using Christ as their goal. Both are driving toward Christ together in an effort to picture Christ's chief creation, which is the church that he died for. We cannot accomplish the purpose that we've been given. We cannot... Paint the picture that Christ wants our marriages to picture if one part is singing a different note or painting a different scene. It's impossible. It's incompatible. It's incompatible. The very purpose of marriage is to picture the gospel. And unless two people are embracing the gospel and living for the gospel and preaching to themselves the gospel, they cannot possibly picture it okay now let's I have five objections to what I've just presented and I have answers to those objections okay I'm not going to just list objections without answering them and maybe if you have some objections that you have heard you can hit me with them afterward but I've got the five that I've heard most frequently okay you ready for these they're super hard and ones that you probably would have never come up with on your own Okay, are you ready? I love him. (laughs) I love her. Okay, how many of you have heard that one? Okay, I love him. Okay, well, number one, I don't doubt that you do. And again, the unbelieving portion, the unbelieving part in this is is not the problem, is not an enemy. But let's talk to the Christian in this equation. Number one, Let's respond to this. God expects you to demonstrate your ultimate love of God by obeying his word. Okay. Your chief love is God. Your spouse will only ever be number two. And God is expecting you to demonstrate your primary and chief love of God. And how do we do that? Well, we obey his word, 1 John 5, 2 and 3. For this is love. This is how we know we love God. If we obey his commandments... And God has so clearly spoken that you cannot say that you're loving God if you're moving forward with this. And you clearly love something more than you love God. And that is a problem of the deepest concern for those who love you. Number two, it's, not a, it, it's an issue of who do you love most? I'm not saying you don't love him, but you have to love God more. And that, that's the pattern that your marriage has to take moving forward. Number two, answer to this objection. God frequently brings us opportunities, specifically so that we will say no to them as we trust the Lord for his supply. Okay, Does God ever bring you things, perfectly good things, he expects you to say no to? Well, of course he does. Let's go all the way back to the beginning. Does everybody remember the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Was there anything wrong with the fruit? No. Was there anything wrong with the tree? Was it dark and foreboding and evil and whispers came out of it, don't eat me? Did it ooze green slime and make it totally unappetizing? It was a perfectly good tree. It produced perfectly good fruit. And God escorted the man and woman to it and said, now this one is here. Specifically, so that you can say no to it now why does god want them to say no to it anybody show their trust there's something else too in the previous verse god says you shall eat of all the trees trust is a big part of it but what else contentment satisfaction God, God, you've given me so much. You've already supplied me with everything that I need. Now I don't need this. I don't need this now. Because you're, you've already given me all that I need and want. And this tree is here as an altar. Where I deny myself it because you're so good. Okay? And again, this is a picture of marriage. There's lots of beautiful men and compass- uh, beautiful women and compassionate men walking around. No husband would deny that that woman isn't pretty, but you said yes to this one and no to all the rest. And that is an expression of love. Same is true here. All right. So that was our first one. I love him. I know you would have never come up with that on your own. Okay. Let's do the second one. Okay. And again, it's probably totally out of the box. Strap your seatbelts on. Ready? He or she loves me. (laughs) He or she loves me. Okay. Well, again, I have no doubt that that person loves you. They are not the problem. They are not the enemy. I have no doubt that and in fact, there's something good about this. They have seen, hopefully, Christ in you, and that appeals to them. Okay? And that's a good thing. But, let's respond to this. Your faith will become miserable to the one who loves you or to the one that you love. In Second Corinthians 2, verses 15 and 16, Paul says that we become, when we are Christians, we take on a certain aroma. And to other Christians, it's the aroma of life. And to unbelievers, it's the aroma of death. And though this person loves you, and though this person is good to you, eventually, they will grow weary of being second. They will grow weary of Sunday mornings being given to the Lord. They will grow weary of Bible studies. And they will grow weary of you asking them to come with them to church and prayer time. They will grow weary of a growing presence of Christ in you. And eventually, they will grow to resent the faith that they now tolerate. Again, they're not the problem, they're not the enemy, and I would say this to them with great urgency. You will end up despising this if you don't accept it. And I always feel that unbelie- the unbelieving person in this equation, is being given a bit of a bait and switch. They were promised unflinching fidelity, and then when they get in marriage, suddenly they're second. And we might excuse them for feeling a little betrayed when that happens. Okay? Number two, an unbeliever can never be for you what you need them to be. Okay, they're A husband is supposed to love you like Christ sacrificed for the church. How can you expect an unbelieving man to sacrifice all of himself when he doesn't embrace that sacrifice? How can you expect that wife to love and admire you as she loves and admires Christ if she doesn't accept Christ or embrace Christ? These are necessary components of marriage that your future spouse won't be able to do, okay? This third one, this third objection, is probably actually the most common one that I've heard, okay? This is probably the most common one that I've heard. It's this. He or she has started attending church, having gospel conversation, seems to be open to the gospel, etc. In other words, they're going to get saved if I just stay in this relationship, okay? Let me respond to that. Number one, First Samuel fifteen twenty two: to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. Okay, evangelism is an act of worship, it's an act of sacrifice, but God prioritizes obedience to him and his word over evangelism. The chief end of man is not evangelism, the chief end of man is the glory of God, and God expects us to glorify him by choosing him and listening to his words and obeying his commands. Number two, the gospel is never furthered by disobedience or hypocrisy. Romans 6, 1 and 2, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? May it never be. You cannot further the gospel in somebody's life as you undercut the gospel with your actions. Your spouse, your boyfriend, your fiance, whoever it is, will see through that eventually. They will see through that. And the next time... You want to do something for your God, they'll say, Well, it, why does it matter now when it didn't matter then? And what will you do? You will have no ground to stand on. Number three, salvation belongs to the Lord. Do not presume to be the key ingredient of God's work in another's heart. <laughs> you are not the key ingredient, you're not the person that's going to save or convert. You may be a grace, but it's God who saves. It's God who works. It's God who does. And he will save and choose his way, his time. He expects us to obey his clear commands as he does work. By the way, it's not an either or, okay? It's not an either or. Either I marry this unbeliever or he never gets saved, okay? It can be both and. You don't marry him and he gets saved, okay? It can be a both and. All right, uh, number fourth objection. This is one I've heard several times as well. Lots of Christian marriages end in disaster, okay? And that excuses me from marrying a Christian because I've seen two Christians who've gotten married, and that ends really badly. Well, I'm not going to deny that some Christian marriages have ended in disaster. Um, I've seen it with my own eyes. I've had some of my own friends I remember being, being um, exposed to this for the very first time. I had a very good friend. I won't mention his name. Very good friend, close friend. He was a student in ministerial training with me. We, d- we took a lot of the same classes together. Um, we learned Greek together. I would go over to his house, and we would study theology together. He married a beautiful, kind, gracious woman. And I was—I marveled at how lucky he got to marry her. And one day, he just stopped being a friend. He stopped returning calls. He stopped inviting me over. I didn't know if it was something I had done. Unbeknownst to me, he'd started drinking heavily in the home. He apparently had a string of girlfriends that he was fornicating with prior to marriage. That fornication turned to adultery the second he got married. He was never faithful to her before they were married, during their marriage. He confessed it to her. His church tried to intervene, and he... Divorced her and left the state. Never to come back to God. That was my friend. That's a disaster. Could I, did I see that coming? Absolutely not. In fact, if there was a person I saw it coming in, he's still faithful in ministry in Michigan, doing a great job. He was the one I was worried about. This fella, I had no worries about. They blindsided everybody. But does your rebellion fix that? Does your setting yourself up for heartache and grief fix the disasters that occurred over here? You know, your own mother used to tell you, two wrongs don't make a right. And never is it more true in this case. Rebellion and hypocrisy on top of sin, never makes for a good or better situation. Or we have another phrase, you jump from the frying pan to the fire. Okay? Jesus talks about this. He's talking to Peter. He says, Peter, when you're old, you're going to be led somewhere you don't want to go. He was talking about Peter's death. And Peter looked at John and said, what about him? And Jesus said, what is that to you? You follow me. Okay? We look and see these disasters, and we say, Lord, what happened? Now, God, of course, wants us to be compassionate and care and help and run to the person in need, but there is a sense in which Jesus would say, I, independent of that situation, I want you to follow me. Here's our fifth objection. I know so-and-so, an unbeliever who married a believer, or a believer who married an unbeliever, and it worked out for them. Well, I don't have a Bible verse for this one. Um, I do have Bible verses for this one, I'm sorry. But for every one that you can trot out that worked, God's people can trot out a hundred that ended in disaster. Okay. Um, it's a very small minority that you should not bank on. Sometimes God blesses us in spite of us, not because of us. And again, I said this one before. I, I had gotten a little crazy on my verse quotation. To obey is better than to sacrifice. In Romans 6, 1 and 2, the gospel is never furthered by disobedience. How did I get that one mixed up? Oh I put that verse up there. Salvation belongs to the Lord, Psalm three eight and Jonah two nine. I put those up there. Sorry. I looked at the wrong slide on my sheet. Yes, it may have worked for so and so, but that was not because of them, that was despite of them, in spite of them, and because of God's good grace and mercy. God has spoken very clearly. Now, I've been speaking to you as though you're considering this, and I apologize for that. I just realized that. <laughs> Consider me speaking through you to another, okay? <laughs> Pretend for a moment that somebody's sitting in front of you going, I just really love this believer, this unbeliever. Or, wha- By the way, while we have just a minute left, anybody have any other objections that I may have missed that you've heard through the years? Do those five pretty much cover it? Yes, Elaine. Oh yes, there. I, you know what? I. That's. I missed that one. There aren't any believers around me to marry. Well, guess what? God is omnipotent, and if God wants you to be married, and He sent you to the planet and He sent you to the moon, He would make sure He sent a woman to the moon so that you could have her. Okay. God is capable, God is able, he moves people around, trust in the omnipotence and omniscience and providence of God. Commit your way to the Lord, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. <laughs> All right, any, any others? That's a good one, Elaine. Man, I missed that one. Rhonda. Rhonda. Mm. 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 Well, the, for if anybody's listening, I've done everything right, and God hasn't provided. Okay, well, well number one, we don't believe in meritorious suffering. <laughs> we don't believe that we deserve anything other than hell. And we're given Christ in his riches. Number two, you don't know the end of the story. Think of Elizabeth who went all those years without a child and suddenly she has John the Baptist. Or Sarah who went all those years without a child and suddenly she has Isaac. Or what if you're like the, the eunuch, the Ethiopian eunuch, Who's used in a moment to glorify the Lord? We don't know what God's purposes are. We don't know the end of the story. We do the right thing out of gratitude for what God has done for us, not for what it will get us in the end, because we already have everything in the end. Though I would say this to that person very gently because that is touching a raw nerve. And then I would follow up and do everything I could to surround that person with fellowship and mercy. Okay, any others? All right. Well, let's pray. I went a little long. My apologies. I I thought I might. Um, But... uh, uh, Let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll get ready for worship. Father, thank you for this time. I pray that you would equip us, Lord, for interaction with others who might be considering taking uh, an unwise, rebellious step. Help us to hold fast to your word and demonstrate our love by our obedience to you. For we pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen.